<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hello, friends. Hope you've been having a great summer. And thanks for joining us again here at the tail end of summer on the Bill Press Pod. You know, over the years at CNN and MSNBC and on the Bill Press Show, I've had the honor of getting to know many, many members of Congress, most of whom, I got to tell you, are dedicated, hardworking public servants. And one of those I've always admired the most is Congresswoman Jackie Speer, who represents California's 14th congressional district, just south of San Francisco. Jackie's been a strong leader on many issues, but especially on the issue, the important issue of sexual assault in the military. On that issue, she's been relentless, going after the generals in the Pentagon, calling them on the carpet, pressuring them to take the problem of sexual assault in the armed forces seriously, and finally forcing them to take cases of sexual assault out of the military chain of command, where they were too often just swept under the rug and into a federal courtroom. Sadly, Jackie's one of some 30 Democrats who have announced that they're going to retire from Congress this year. But fortunately, before she rides off into the sunset, we caught up with a good congresswoman from California to get her take on some of the big challenges facing us today. Congresswoman Jackie Speer, good to talk to you again. Good to reconnect. It's been too long. Welcome to the Bill Press Pod. Thank you, Bill. I'm glad to be with you. Well, let's start with, uh, you got a lot on your plate, I know, but start with a little bit of breaking news. It's hard to keep track of, but on this document seizure down at Mar-a-Lago, it looks like now it's up to 20 boxes that Donald Trump took with him from the White House to Mar-a-Lago, including some 700 pages of classified documents, some of them in the very top secret category. Uh, How do you take, is this a big deal? I think it's a huge deal. First of all, those documents don't belong to him. The Presidential <laughs> Records right. Act um, was specific about they belong to the people of this country. So, you know, and I've read a lot of SCI top secret information in my role on the Intelligence Committee. There's nothing there that is of interest to take home with you. First of all, you can't <laughs> take it home with you. Yeah. Um, so the only reason he has it, I believe, is for ulterior purposes. The man is pretty transparent. He's all about making money. He's all about himself. Um, He's all about using delay tactics when he gets caught with his hand in the cookie jar. And that's what we're seeing play out here. What's so frightening about this is that anything that's labeled SCI, that is the most um, specific and um, serious information that if it got into the hands of our adversaries would impact our national security. Mm-hmm. So what is he doing with that information except to broker it? Otherwise, why would he take it, right? And- right. I mean, and, and now it appears, now they've got this video 
of people going in and out of the storage. Who was going in and out of the storage room? And then you couple that with the fact that during his presidency, who was he cozying up to? He was cozying up to China, Russia, and Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. What did what did Kushner do um, towards the end of his term? He was flying to Saudi Arabia. What did he do right after um, Donald Trump was out of office? A $3 billion fund with Saudi Arabia? Um, why has the president never said anything about the Khashoggi um, murder by um, the, the crown prince? I mean, you add all this up and you know that there's nothing good coming out of this. And the fact that Donald Trump has been slow-mowing this for a year and a half and coming up with one cockamamie idea after another, like, well, I've, I've declassified them all. First of all, he can't do that. But even if he did declassify them all, he, he doesn't own them. They're not his to have. So um, I, I, I'm apoplectic about it, to tell you the truth. Do you think in the end, I mean, here's a man who has, um, but he's pretty wily, right? He's kind of skated from all the Russian interference in the 2016 election, which he knew about and welcomed. He's sort of skated on trying to bribe uh, the president of Ukraine and investigating Joe Biden. He got impeached for that, but still he remained president. He skated from unleashing an armed mob on the United States Capitol, putting every member of Congress, including yourself, at risk. Do you think, in the end, this stash of documents may be the thing that finally brings Donald Trump uh, into legal hot water? Well, I, I'm reminded of Al Capone, who you know, <laughs> right. was the mastermind of all these murders. What does he go to Alcatraz for? Tax evasion. Um, so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, but this is serious. And, you know, Merrick Garland is not a... Um, it's not a peacock, you know. He he doesn't use the office. He's very judicial in in how he conducts himself. I mean, lots of Democrats have been criticizing him for moving so slowly. Um, so for him to authorize a search warrant and then to have a judge approve it suggests that we're dealing with something very serious. Right. Uh, and in addition, this is on top of. Um, what appears to be an ongoing Department of Justice investigation, parallel to what the January 6th committee has been looking into, uh, Donald Trump's role uh, before, during, on, and after January 6th. How do you assess so far, you're not a member of it, but how do you assess so far the work of the January 6th committee? Well, you know, I served on the first um, committee that looked at impeachment on the Intelligence Committee before the two impeachment hearings. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I would give us a C and I would give the January 6th committee an A. I mean, it is so well developed and the public can um, follow the narrative. You know, when you go from one member to another asking questions and it's not properly um, outlined, the public gets a muddled view of things. Um, There's nothing muddled about the January 6th committee and the way they have laid out um, the narrative. They, um, maybe you guys should have hired your own television producer, right? Exactly. Like <laughs> <laughs> that should, <laughs> we know what our strengths and weaknesses are now. But they did. But part of that, uh, I hate to say credit, right, for the focus is that Kevin McCarthy refused a bipartisan committee. So therefore, 
put it all in Nancy Pelosi's hands. Yeah. He, um, he miscalculated, which goes to show you, I mean, Kevin McCarthy um, is so desperate to be speaker that he will capitulate to um, Donald Trump and anyone else. And at the time, I think Donald Trump wanted to try and shut it down. And that they thought they, that's what they were going to do. But you right. talk about Wiley. How about the Speaker of the House? Who oh. said, All right, then I'll do it my way. Yeah, right. <laughs> you had your chance. And then right. you had, you know, you had Republicans serving on the committee. So it is bipartisan. Uh, they happen to be Republicans that think that Donald Trump, um, you know, should be impeached, uh, voted for impeachment, and that our democracy is at grave risk. What kind? How much credit do you give to Liz Cheney for her role on the committee? Uh, profound, profound credit. Um, you know, I've, as I understand it, and you know, I know Liz. I actually nominated her for um, the profile, the Kennedy Profile and Courage Award. Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, she has worked, from what I've been told, extremely hard. She writes her own statements. Um, she has put everything into this. Um, and as you, you know, observe how she has uh, conducted herself during her campaign and after she lost, I mean, she is a, a person on a mission um, to save this country. I mean, she is the highest level of a patriot. And I don't agree with much of her um, policy positions, but I, I'd be in a foxhole with her anytime if it yeah. was defending our country. Do you think the committee, you give them an A for their work, do you think that it's had an impact? Has the has it uh, penetrated through to the American people? That's a hard question to answer. I think that it has provided clarity that, to those that want clarity. Mm -hmm. And as long as you're going to listen to your specific echo chamber um, that doesn't want to cover it or has a different script that they want to provide – you know, you may not be um, convinced, but they've had some, you know, compelling testimony um, by Trump staffers in the White House that, um, you know, certainly captured the attention of everyone. You know, the president choking on, on his Secret Service, throwing ketchup up, <laughs> throwing plates. I mean, you, you get the impression that you're dealing with a petulant child. And, you know, the, the documents, too, they remind me of a child who, you know, wants to take his marbles and go home. I mean, he is unfit for public office, was unfit when he was president, is certainly unfit today. Now, whether or not the, um, the findings of the January 6th committee, and we know that they're still working, there's still going to be some more hearings in September, uh, whether or not that has, that has an impact on the midterms, one issue that seems bound to have an impact on the midterms, Congresswoman, is the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision. Uh, how do you rate that decision? I want to talk hear from you both on how it impacts American women and how you think it will impact American politics. Let's start with the impact on American women, most of whom alive today uh, don't remember the days before Roe v. Wade. Uh, it is the single... Um, most significant impact on women in my lifetime in terms of rolling back women's rights. Um, it, 
when all is said and done, about half the women in this country will not be able to access an abortion in their state. Half of the women in mm. this country. Um, it, it, I look at our service members who uh, are now in installations in some of the deepest red states with the most restrictive abortion policies. Uh, and we're talking about probably 120 installations now in states that prevent um, abortion access. They can't get it at a military treatment facility. They're going to have to fly somewhere in some cases um, or drive long distances. Um, they have to pay for it themselves. You know, these are our service members who arguably are there to pr provide protection uh, for our national security. It's going to affect retention, resilience, and recruitment. Um, so there's that component of it. And I think the intensity of that issue and its impacts on women are going to be felt in the midterm elections. I don't know if it's going to allow us to retain the House, but I think for sure it's going to uh, limit the number of seats that we lose. I mean, the New York state special election, I think mm -hmm. that case very clearly with the election of, of Ryan um, that was seen as either a toss up or a lean Republican. Right. Well, you mentioned New York's 19. I mean, that was really, really important. Everybody said this was the swing district. This is the one to watch. Uh, everybody thought the Republican actually was going to win, but Pat Ryan, the Democrat pulled off a big upset. And one of the reasons he won is because he said when he goes to Washington, he's going to do everything he can to thwart that Supreme Court Dobbs decision. Uh, and again, he won, which I think we can all take as a good sign, right? I would, I would agree. You know, one of the, the most um, destructive elements of the Dobbs case is the fact that the Supreme Court now has lost its credibility in many cases. It is seen yep, as yep. a political institution, and that does not bode well for our country. Um, and again, it is a uh, mad scientist kind of activity going on among the, the conservatives that created the Federalist Society. And then you had Donald Trump that just said, how high do you want me to jump in terms of the appointments he made? Right. Do you believe that this is an issue that will um, drive women to the polls? I mean, get that enthusiasm gap narrowed uh, and really generate voter turnout, which, of course, uh, usually is lacking in midterm elections. I, I do. I think there's two universe, universes of, of women uh, that typically are not um, going to vote or vote Democratic. One is the young voter. Who, who tends to not vote. I, I think um, young women voters are going to go to the polls. And then the second is the suburban woman who tends to either be a Republican or an independent who um, you know, lived through the 70s and um, recognized what a disaster this is uh, for women. You know, the other thing that really bugs me about this, Bill, is no, there's no talk about the impregnator here. Mm. You know, it's almost like it's immaculate conception. Yeah. It, it takes yeah. two. Um, <laughs> it takes two. So what is, we now are saying to women, you've got to carry this fetus um, to term. This is government mandated pregnancy. 
And then you're going to be responsible for this child once it's born, or you can put it up for adoption. What is the responsibility of the impregnator? I think we should require them to put a $350,000 bond up um, if there is a, a child that, that is born as a result of this. Um, so that there's care for this child over their lifetime. 59% of women who get abortions are already mothers. That should tell us something. That should tell us that they want to care for their kids. And if they have another child, there's going to be less for the rest of the family. 50% of these women who get abortions are living below the poverty level. Wow. I didn't know. Yeah, those statistics are really are really stunning. Uh, and emphasize, again, the importance of the issue. By the way, I did see one thing, Jackie, that uh, uh, I found encouraging, which is in Pennsylvania, which, of course, has a very key Senate race and a very key governor's race, voter registration in Pennsylvania since the Dobbs decision has been overwhelmingly up among women, um, not just Democratic women, even Republican women. Right. Uh, which I think is a sign again that this is uh, hitting home, right? And people, yeah, and, yeah, and you know, people in Pennsylvania don't know what crudite is either. <laughs> uh, you know, he, no. should, he should use that word in the Hamptons, not in uh, <laughs> in Trenton, Pennsylvania. <laughs> Exactly. Oh, so many issues to talk about. We're just getting started here. Uh, Congresswoman, we'll take a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod and then come back. I want to ask you about particularly some of the important issue landmark uh, leadership that you've shown in the area of sexual assault, sexual discrimination in the military. Uh, our guest, Congresswoman Jackie Spear, Congress California's 14th Congressional District. A quick break and we'll be right back. Hey, friends, as I mentioned earlier, uh, there are about some 30 Democrats who've announced they're going to retire from Congress this year, which makes it all the more challenging, tough, but not impossible for Democrats to hold on to the House. So it's more important than ever this year that we all pitch in to provide whatever help we can for the big, important House races and Senate races in these midterm elections. And the best way to do so, one-stop shop, is ACT. Blue. It's actblue.com. Go to that website and you can make a contribution to any candidate you want to support, or you can let Act Blue decide where your money could be best spent to save the House or to save and hold on to the Senate. Again, actblue.com. It's important that we all pitch in. That's the best way to do it. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. 
CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And again, thank you for joining us here on the Bill Press Pod. Our guest, Congresswoman Jackie Speer, representing California's 14th Congressional District. So, Congresswoman, you and uh, your colleague, uh, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, I've really been among the leaders in many issues, but particularly sexual assault in the military. Uh, you've accomplished a lot, but what's the current status? I, I checked this morning, and it looks like, despite all you've done, the numbers are still going up. Is that because more cases are being reported or more sexual assault is happening? I think it's um, no question that women feel more confident coming forward as we roll out this program where no longer will these cases be decided in the chain of command. There, we're rolling out a special prosecutor and special investigators that will handle these cases, make the determination whether to move forward. And that will be a, um, a huge step in the right direction. Uh, sexual harassment, uh, I was able to get in um, to the Uniform Code of Military Justice as a crime in the last uh, NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act. Uh, this year, we want to make sure these cases are also taken out of the chain of command. Right now, that is still a determination that a commander would make. The problem with allowing commanders to make these decisions is, one, they're not lawyers. Uh, two, oftentimes the perpetrator is someone in the chain of command or the best friend of someone in the chain mm -hmm. of command. And as we learned uh, in that horrible uh, murder at Fort Hood, uh, oftentimes these cases are never taken seriously. And uh, Vanessa Guillen was the young private who uh, was murdered by another soldier and then dismembered and buried. And for two months, they didn't know what had happened to her. Um, and it really was only because a contractor was building a fence near the site of where the, mm. the body had been uh, dismembered and buried that he, you know, smelled a stench and, and went Ooh. over and uh, yeah, it's, it was, so it also uncovered the fact that not only was there toxic, um, a toxic culture at Fort Hood, but the actual investigative services that the army was using was ill-prepared to handle these cases. Um, they did not have civilians as investigators, all of which now we have changed. So uh, I think it's going to take some time. It's not going to be overnight. But I also think an increase in reporting suggests that there's a, a recognition that, that their claims will be handled appropriately. It's also important to point out 93 to 97% of those that come forward um, having alleged sexual assault are telling the truth. Because so many end up not talking about it because they just, you know, they want to bury it. So when does this kick in that it's outside of the chain of command? Well, it's um, the actual system is being put in place now. We're going to have a hearing in the committee I chair, military personnel, uh, in a couple of weeks to see where they are in 
um, actually rolling it out completely, but they're in the process of hiring um, the talent that will be necessary to provide uh, this kind of um, you know, legal expertise. And what more needs to be done in your, in your judgment? I think that we need to look at the way that non-judicial punishment is meted out. That's where a, a um, commander just makes a decision to give someone, you know, um, you know, a, a slap on the wrist or, um, you know, do some kind of um, hard labor somewhere. But mm-hmm. uh, what we know is that there are um, more service members of uh, color that are subject to non-judicial punishment than, um, than white. So I, I think that whole area needs to be looked at moving forward as well. Uh, a related issue that I know you've been working on, which hasn't gotten as much attention, uh, but it's a very serious problem, uh, are the, the number of cases of suicide uh, in the military. How, wh- how do you read that? How do, you know, what's responsible for that, and what are we doing about it? So two hot spots, really. Um, recently, the USS George Washington um, that is um, dry docked in Virginia for a maintenance overhaul, and then uh, our service members in Alaska. And I've made one trip to Alaska. We'll be making another trip um, in just a couple of weeks. Uh, we had seen a doubling of the number of suicides in Alaska. And uh, in going up there and, and looking at the problem, we don't have enough behavioral health personnel to provide services. Uh, the service members can't access it. So you're showing suicidal ideation and you can get an appointment in two months. Well, you know, that's not good enough, right? Um, I talked to all of the spouses and parents of those that died by suicide last year. Um, And some of the stories are just so painful to hear and the families are in such pain. One of these uh, was a sergeant who had just come back from having spent the holidays with his parents, um, was about to go to a special training in Georgia, had gone to Walmart to pick up some video games because he was going to see some of his old buddies, um, stopped at his apartment to get some gear, let the um, motor run on his vehicle, went upstairs and shot himself. Ooh. So the hearing we had very recently on suicide in the military, um, it <laughs> One of the points that the expert made was if you, it's so impulsive that if you can just prevent them from acting immediately, you can save lives. So his point was uh, require gun locks, require gun safes, all of which um, create a reason for pause. So one of the elements in the mm-hmm. bill this year is to provide on a voluntary basis a pilot um, to offer uh, locks and um, safes to service members to use. We also provide Arctic pay, which is increasing the salary because it's remote, it's costly, um, covering their costs for um, internet because you know, much of their time they're, they're on their, um, their play equipment because there's nothing else to do there um, and making sure there's more behavioral health and, and telehealth available to them. So those are some of the issues um, that we're addressing um, to try and, and stem the 
the suicide. And, and at the USS George Washington, more complicated situation, but um, there's a recognition that we have more to do there as well. Do you think the Pentagon is, is uh, taking this issue seriously enough or has? I do think they recognize that it's, it's quite serious. Secretary Austin has said mental health is health. Um, mm-hmm. So the stigma associated with seeking mental health in the service historically um, is starting to wane. Although when I was in Alaska, I had a, a young uh, private say he had an appointment to see um, a behavioral health specialist and his, um, you know, his drill sergeant just said, um, sorry, you can't go. So, I mean, there's still some work we have to do in that regard. Uh, the story you told about this, this sergeant, uh, in Alaska, uh, and easy accessible, easy accessibility to that uh, service gun, of course, <laughs> relates to the issue of gun safety in this country, which is a problem we just simply don't seem to be able to get on top of. Um, we've had one bill passed signed by the president. It doesn't go nearly as far as you and others would go. And so for you, uh, as a survivor yourself of gun violence, Congresswoman, What's it going to take to get sensible gun safety measures passed in this country? Do you see any, any, are you optimistic at all? You know, how many Uvaldis do we have to have? Right. Yeah. Um, it, it, how many uh, Sandy Hooks do we have to have? I mean, the bill, and I give Chris Murphy, Senator Murphy, so much credit for, for getting something passed to just break the log jam that has existed for 30 years. But we still don't have universal background checks. Yeah. And now- you know, with ghost guns, you just, you know, go online and you talk to any law enforcement officer. That's what they're most afraid of. Now you go online, you buy a bunch of parts, you, you make the guns. I had someone tell me yesterday in my district in California, kids were making these guns and selling them in my community. Mm. So, um, there is, there is so much more that needs to be done. I happen to have been in Copenhagen when Uvalde happened. And so for the rest of my congressional trip there, I asked the, um, the equivalent of the FBI in each of those countries um, about mass shootings. And I said, how many do, do you have a year? And they looked at me and shrugged their shoulders because they don't have them. If you take the EU, it's about 400 million people. If you take the United States, we're 330 million people. Last year... In the EU, there were 2,300 deaths by gun violence. In the United States, there were 49,000. God. It it is a sick culture that um, promotes guns. I mean, they have pink AR-15s to sell to to kids now. You go online, you can see pink AR-15s. Whoa. Uh, And Republicans in Congress could not even bring themselves to raise the legal age for buying an AR-15 from 18 to 21. Yeah. Right. And, you know, that's where we see um, the greatest impulsive activity. There are young men um, who um, are angry and hostile and, you know, and that you can't buy a handgun until you're 21 in this country. Think about that. But -hmm. you can buy an AR-15. Yeah. Insane. Uh, well, that may be another issue that moves the needle a little bit uh, in um, in 2022, in the midterms, and 2024 as well. But I want to ask you, Congressman, finally about um, the N- NBC had a 
new poll came out this week. And one thing I found very uh, interesting and was really surprised to find, they asked an open-ended question. What is the most important issue facing the United States today, facing the country today? So unsolicited, you know, unprompted, what came in number one, threats to our democracy over inflation, over cost of your jobs, over the cost of living, over abortion, um, gun control, everything. Threats to our democracy. Um, do you believe there are threats to our democracy today? And are you surprised that so many people are aware of that? Uh, yes, I do think there are threats to our democracy. You know, January 6th was just a hair away from a coup. If they had more guns, they could have slaughtered all of us. And I was in the gallery that more, that afternoon. Um, I think you have to give credit to the January 6th committee for um, the elevated attention to yep. the potential threat to democracy. Um, that might be one of its, you know, its lasting um, imprimaturs on our, you know, history that um, they have elevated the the potential risks. And then you can see Russia invading Ukraine and the Ukrainian people showing such resolve and courage to fight back. Um, I, I think that Donald Trump unleashed a bigoted undercurrent in this country that also was coupled with um, anger about, um, you know, not having what they want. And that has kind of, you know, penetrated everywhere. And so I think it also has, has alerted the rest of the population that, yeah, this is, this is a problem. I've had more death threats since Donald Trump was president in my, you know, almost 40 years in public life. Mm. Um, there were there were actually two cases that were filed by the DA because they were um, so serious and and two convictions. And I'm sure many many, many members of Congress that have had a, uh, that same experience. But this threat to democracy, I mean, beyond January 6th, now it's, of course, at the state level where so many state legislatures are trying to depress the vote, right, or say... You know, we're going to have people who can overturn the electors <laughs> chosen by the people if we're not happy with their choice. Um, so it's happening on many fronts. And uh, it looks like Donald Trump is uh, either behind every one of them or supports all of those efforts. Um, that is true. I mean, he wants to create a, a country in which he can rig an election. You know, we, it's important to remember in 2016, he was saying the election was rigged before he won surprisingly. So that's always been part of his script. Right. It's always rigged. Um, so uh, I think that we just have to you know, push back. And the fact that it came number one on that NBC poll suggests that, that people are alert now. Um, and that's really important. So there's so much work still to be done, uh, Congresswoman, but pretty soon... You're no longer going to be there. Your choice, but all of us who uh, admire your work and have for a long time have to ask you, why? Why Why did you decide to step down? Well, first of all, there, there needs to be a passing of the torch. I mean, I have been in public life for 40 years. I've been on Congress for 15. Um, so that's number one. Number two, I have a husband 
who retired two years ago and is tired of a weekend wife. And <laughs> I, I owed him that. And three, I'm, I'm not leaving the town square. I, I am still going to speak up. Um, and, you know, for, we'll see how long I still have some, some cred <laughs> in the community. We'll see. <laughs> I think you have a lot of credit in the community, but seriously, you have been a very effective, uh, a very powerful member of Congress. And I have to tell you, as a Californian, uh, as an American, and as a friend, I'm sorry to see you go. We will miss your presence in the United States Congress, but have to thank you for all the uh, great leadership you've provided there. We are forever grateful for your good work, Jackie Spear. Thank you, Bill Press. Thank you for being a voice of reason and political acumen and uh, progressive politics. <laughs> You're very kind. And you and I both have still a lot of battles to fight, Jackie, which we That's will. That's right. That's right. <laughs> we'll right. do it together. <laughs> we'll do it together. Thank you so much for joining us. All right. My pleasure. And that's it. Sayonara. And a big thank you to Congresswoman Jackie Spear. And thanks to all of you for uh, sitting down with us again here on the Bill Press Pod. We'll be back, as always, on Friday with this week's roundtable with a lot going on. A big decision due Thursday on whether or not there'll be a special master appointed uh, to look into the uh, many, many boxes of documents that Donald Trump had stolen and taken to Mar-a-Lago. We'll take a look uh, with our panel at the important Senate and governor's races and the latest in those races. Plus, there's a looming Senate vote could happen as early as this week on codifying same-sex marriage, which could be a big embarrassment to Wisconsin's Ron Johnson. All of that we'll take a look at with our three top political reporters on Friday. Come back and see us then. Meanwhile, uh, take care of yourselves. Come back and see us Friday on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.